I'm delighted to have with us today Alan Brown, who is a Professor of Digital Economy at the University of Exeter. He's also a well-known consultant and a fairly experienced entrepreneur. So he's got his fingers in many of the innovation and entrepreneurship pies. But Alan, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Um, the reason I'm particularly glad you're here is you might help understand or help us understand this digital world that we're surging through at the moment, not least thanks to this wretched pandemic. Um, we're at a time of digital transformation. And uh, I know you know about that because you wrote a book, Delivering Digital Transformation. Um, perhaps you could start by just telling us a bit about what is that big challenge? It doesn't sound like tinkering at the edges. Transformation sounds like big change. Could you tell us a bit about why that's such a strategically important challenge? Yes, I will. Thank you, John. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's great to have a chance to chat with you. Um, I, I think you're right. I, 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 I often start my conversations with people by saying we're living through a digital revolution. And the reason I say that partly is just to provoke people, because I want to try to get people to challenge themselves a bit to say, so is this a revolution and what do we mean by a revolution? Or is this just the next turn of the wheel? Um, but also because I, I actually believe we are going through something of a revolution. And what I think that means in, in terms of what's going on is two things. First of all, I think if you're going through something that you believe is a revolution, what you're really saying is the way we looked at the world the kinds of laws and models and frames of reference we had before this may not be appropriate for after this. In fact, we're pretty sure they're not. And the challenge of the revolution is to try to work out why are they not? Which ones do we think still have relevance? And what new kinds of ways of looking at the world are going to be more helpful to us? And I think we're right in the middle of that right now with so many things we're talking about to do with business, to do with life, to do with society, that I would like to argue that many of the ways that we thought about the world are not and will not be relevant to us going forward. So, that, so that's the first what, reason why I might say we're in a digital revolution or, or going through a, a major transformation. The, the second, I think, is that I think we're seeing what people like Friedman and others called a confluence of new digital technologies that I think are pushing us beyond any single advance that we've seen over the last few years. And what I mean by that is when we tie together things like artificial intelligence, uh, the, the computing power available in a very easily accessible, elastic way through cloud, when we tie that with AR and VR so that we can use virtual reality to be in new worlds, you know, this new push towards the metaverse. Um, when we start to think about um, the, the way we think about ourselves and our way of working in this new, um, let's call it post-COVID, if we're not quite post-COVID world, where we're, we've reset our values. When we bring all those things together, I don't think we're in the same situation anymore. And whether that's driven by the digital technology or caused and supported by those digital technologies or simply aided by those digital technologies, to me, is sort of irrelevant. Regardless, we're in that transforming kind of place right now. Yeah. And I guess from what you're saying, it, it, it reminds me of industrial revolution back in the sort of 18th century and so on, the same kind of scale of change. And indeed what Chris Freeman and Carlotta Perez wrote about in terms of these big occasional long waves that change everything. But uh, does this just concentrate on business or are we talking about the public sector? Are we talking about not-for-profit? Is this right across the piece? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I spent time this morning talking with uh, a government agency in the UK 
about what they're going through right now. And it, it typically when I talk about digital transformation, particularly in organizations in the public sector or larger organizations, I always have to, to, to have two kind of different conversations going on. The first is I think the digital transformation is happening in their organizations, the way they operate, the digitizing of their assets, the new processes that surround that for how they think about themselves, you know, contracts, HR, management, project management, organizational shifts. It's sort of happening inside the organization. The second is what they're doing when they, what's happening to them. The world around them is changing. So their customers and stakeholders want to interact with them through digital means. Um, the kinds of ways in which their success or their metrics are, are, are defined are digital. So, you know, this, this push towards more outcomes rather than outputs, for example, where we want to see the impact. We want to be able to measure that impact. We want to be able to be more flexible in how we respond to the clients and the stakeholders. So they're having to respond to that world at the same time. So whether you're a, a local authority dealing with adult social care and uh, recycling and potholes, or whether you're a, a, a financial services organization offering um, in, insights into people's digital health um, from a financial perspective. I think we're in very different worlds right now, and we're having to deal with the changes and the implications of those changes. Sounds like an incredibly steep learning curve, almost a sort of vertical one. Uh, who's doing it well? Have you got a couple of examples of people who are managing this transformation, or at least are climbing up that wall towards it? Well, I, I think we see different examples of people that are, that are doing it well. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I could point to a, a single organization say that's the model, because I don't think because of we're in this very transformational um, period right now, that that would be appropriate or, or, or actually is, is happening. But I think we can see some examples. So obviously, we can look at two or three groups. We've got the what we might call born digital or digital first kind of organizations that we've seen for the last decade, 15, 20 years where the world has been digital, digitized for some time, and they started in that digital era. And of course, we can point to the big tech organizations and say there are some things that they've done very well. Um, let's take an example. If we think about um, during the pandemic, in, in the last 12 months, Amazon onboarded around about 420,000 new employees. Think about this for a second. 420,000 new employees in a year. So, so the first question is, how on earth were they able to do that? And a lot of what, what they've been able to do would not have been possible if they were not more of a digital-first organization about how they recruit, how they bring people on board, how they manage people, how they look at performance, those sorts of things. So, so there's some aspects of their operation that are very impressive. The way in which they're able to deal with the variability in their environment, the, the, the uncertainty and the kinds of issues that they've had to face in the last 12 months. So those sorts of organizations are very interesting. Uh, Amazon and, and, and a whole bunch of other digital first organizations. Of course, there are many other issues they face, which you may argue have not done as well. And, and the implications are, are, are perhaps larger for us as a society, which we might come on to in a moment. The, the other organizations I think that are interesting are the more incumbent, longer term organizations that have lots of assets in place, a lot of heritage, customers, products in place. Um, some of those have found it much more difficult. And it's interesting how we've seen highs and lows. If you take an example like GE and you say they were the, 
about four or five years ago, they were a poster child for digital transformation. They were adopting some of the lean principles. They had people like Eric Ries um, working with them, applying new ways of thinking. Um, the, the, the people in charge were seen as innovative leaders looking to the digital future. And then in the last few years, it's kind of all collapsed. And what's interesting has been what that journey has looked like and why they were able to make some progress and why they were not able to sustain that because of, if you like, the, the, the weight of the baggage that they were bringing and dragging along with them. At, at first, it seems like a great stepping stone. Look, we can use our organization. We can mine the data that's available to us. We've got a tremendous workforce. We've got access to markets. We've got our ability to dominate markets where we've been in, in place for a long time. Let's build on that and use the digital technologies in order to be more uh, agile in how we look at the market, analyze the market, look for trends, look for strong and weak signals. So they were able to make some progress quite quickly. And I think many organizations are in that phase. What they were unable to do is deal with the tension that that created between their existing organizational structures, if you could argue designed for a 20th century world, and the new ways of thinking and working that smaller parts of that organization were able to succeed in, but were unable to infiltrate the rest of the organization. And to some extent, they got, perhaps to a motive or language, but they kind of got dragged down by the weight of their existing organization. And they're in the middle of trying to sort that out. IBM is another great example of that, where they've made some great progress in cloud, in intelligence services, in uh, things like Watson and these, these new age technologies that are more intellectually based, knowledge based. On the other hand, if you look at where they are in the market right now, if you look at the way the market's valued them, if you look at the way in which they've been letting go employees, redesigning, spinning out parts of their organization, they're clearly not always on top of what they're trying to achieve here. They're struggling a bit to be able to take advantage of some of the, the, the ways forward that they've been able to establish. The picture I'm getting is uh, of enormous turbulence. And as you say, even the born digital companies are struggling to make sense of all of it. Um, but we're not talking about machines. We're talking about people, organizations, whether they're a startup or a global thing like Amazon, are lots of people. What kind of people do we need? And is it a case of change the people and then it'll all work? Can you talk a bit about the, the kind of skills implications of all of this? Yes, you're right. The, the, the skill... The... It's, it's always funny when you say to most organizations, what's the most important critical part of our people? Well, why do you treat them the way you do? And why aren't you more focused on the improvements, the skills uplift, the kind of uh, way in which you want to treat them to be effective in this new digital world? And I think we see a tension there. And um, there are some obvious skills. You, know, we, you, you get these, you know, everybody needs to code kind of uh, initiatives, which... I think are more symbolic than they're, they're, they're actual. They're indicating to people that there are a set of ideas about how this technology works, about the embeddedness of things like software and hardware inside the, the technologies that are important to us and the digital wrappers that we put around some of the uh, analog devices that we deal with. But, but I think what more than that, I think what we're seeing is a different way of working and operating in a digital world that we're beginning to get to grips with. So there's some obvious things like the need for us to be able to react more quickly to what's going on around us. And how do we build organizations and individuals with the right skills to be able to deal with that? And, and if we take an example that you and I are very familiar with, like the education, higher education area, universities and colleges, 
And we say, how do we build a more agile, reactive set of skills in our people? And part of that is the raw skills themselves. You know, what does it mean if I'm managing delivery of education to students in an environment where we need to be much more dynamic? We need to use digital assets more effectively. We need to be able to react to the response from our students in much more dynamic ways. So we need to think about what that means. And there's a lot of ideas about what you might do in the classroom or using digital technologies and so on. But the second part of that is that doesn't work unless the support systems around it are also tuned and synchronized with what you're trying to do. So for example, if you say to your organization in the education case, I want to be able to redesign my delivery approach and the way in which I assess my students to be able to be more reactive to what I'm seeing, they're going to say, hold on a minute, we only got approval last year for a five-year external validation for this course. We're not allowed to change it for the next three years. And you look at that and you say, but that's so misaligned with what we're seeing today. And this is kind of the, the challenge I see is the skills are the individual skills, but also how we think about this, the, the supporting services, and if you like, the broader sense of skills we need to interpret these regulations, these ways of thinking and operating for a digital world. And I think those hard skills, I know how to code, I know how to uh, build online digital assets are interesting. The more interesting and more difficult are, I know how to operate, make decisions, work with my colleagues, be able to um, think differently and operate differently in this digital world. That's a much more challenging kind of uh, role. And I don't quite see how we've made our way through that yet. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a part of me that thinks, well, hang on a minute, we're just being told how incredibly clever AI is and getting more so by the by the millisecond, never mind by the day. Um, why worry about people? We don't need them anymore. I wonder if you could just comment a little on the uh, the slightly scary predictions that uh, it's all going to be done by artificially intelligent systems without us. I think there's uh, there's obviously always two sides to these things. If we think a little bit about where we are with AI and what what it's able to do for us, I'm going to argue perhaps a, a little provocatively. 90% of AI today is trying to clean and manage data, which has come from multiple sources over many months and years, and typically is not in great shape. It's not accurate. It's not up to date. It's not well managed in terms of the formats that it's in to be able to, sh to be shared. And it's certainly not well understood, the, the data that we have. If you take any organization of any scale, often what they'll say is, we've got a lot of data, but we're not sure where it is, how good it is, who can use it how accurate it is, whether it's been superseded. So, so we a lot of what we're doing in AI is managing that mess. So, you know, a data lake is really a data swamp, you know, those kind of things. And then the second part of that is when we apply intelligence to it, so-called intelligence, often it's very raw pattern matching. It's looking for common things that occur frequently that is really useful, particularly if you can do millions of times very quickly across lots of systems, that in itself can be very useful. But it, it's a barely a scratch on what we might call intelligence. And if we can see this happens a lot, it must mean something. Or these things happen a lot, and then this strange thing happens. So this exception occurs, and that's very interesting. So if we can do that, then we've got to ask, so what does that mean? Suppose that 
999 times this happened and then one time this happened. What does that mean? And that intelligence, we're in the barest beginnings of saying we can begin to do that uh, automatically or without intervention from humans. As we know, we're still in that situation where, for example, classifying photographs, machines are, are processing these with huge amounts of effort and still quite a high error rate. And you get a 12-year-old looking at a picture and saying, that's a sunset on the sea. That's a, a, a cow walking in a field. That's a, a man playing a guitar. You know, it's not that hard for a 12-year-old. It's still very hard for computers. So, so while I'm, I, I think it is taking us in an interesting direction, and many things that were uh, thought about from a human point of view are trying to be redesigned to be amenable to that very brute force data and pattern matching point of view, and we're seeing some interesting progress. I think we're a long way away from saying humans are irrelevant, everything will be taken away from us, uh, we need to be um, worried because AI will be in, you know, t doing, doing all of the interesting things and we'll be left sit either in, in our coal bunkers wondering, you know, will the light stay on or sitting on the beach enjoying a martini, whichever your view of the world is. <laughs> I think I go for the beach and the martini. But, uh, um, but that, that leads us really to a, a question I'd love to ask. Um, digital innovation, innovations powered by the hugely interesting digital technologies. Great. But the innovation process itself, how we translate ideas into value, and that's not just commercial value, it's also social value. But that's a process that uh, has been hugely about human beings. Arguably, it's what's helped to survive as a species all these centuries. But is digital really going to change the way we do that? I look, for example, at what happened with the incredibly accelerated innovation process around the pandemic, the ventilator challenges, the vaccine challenges. You know, that's a really fast innovation process that before we might never have believed was possible. So how might this digital revolution affect the process of innovation itself? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And a lot of what I'm doing with organizations in particular, when I'm working with them on some of these innovation sprints, as they call them these days, um, implying that, um, the, so the first thing that does, it implies a different balance between the kinds of risks we're trying to understand. So, for, for example, one of the things I think that happens in an innovative innovation context and a digital world is we sort of rebalance operational risk and delivery risk. What I mean by that is, Often what we were doing in the past, certainly in lots of the, the organizations I worked for, we would work to say, minimize operational risk. When it ships, when it's in the field, when it's handed to a client, it must work. And we will optimize towards that, even if it means taking a bit longer, being a little bit delayed, not doing the, the latest thing or the most innovative thing. It's got to work when it gets in their hands. So operational risk is primary. In some of the worlds that I lived in, it was important because people died, you know, if you got that wrong. So th there was a big pressure and everything else was subservient to that. The opposite says it's about delivery risk. It's about now. Get it out now. Quicker is better. MVPs, you know, minimum viable products, prototypes. So, so, so we, we have a, a different view of risk. And I think the, the starting point for that, what's the innovation process and why do we use words like agile and sprints? and lean. And those words are about thinking about that risk formula, that balance between what are we optimizing for. So that's the first thing. I think at the heart of the innovation process, though, we go back to the ways that you've written a lot about and you've spent your life looking at, which really is about 
if, if I break it down to the, the simplest view that I often use, desirability, feasibility, viability. You know, we've always had that kind of, those three interlocking circles. So desirability, what is it people want? Well, there's lots of ways in which, from a digital point of view, we can understand that more quickly, more in depth. So for example, if I want to know what you want or what excites you and you're uh, in a shopping situation, walking down the aisle of a supermarket, suppose that I can detect the, the, the change in your retina or the changing color red in your neck that says your pulse is, is racing, or uh, you're wear, you've got a wearable on your wrist, which is doing galvanic skin response and heart rate variability. So I know your physiological response to looking and saying, wow, that's that on the shelf there, that's great. Whereas that, that doesn't excite me so much. It's not me guessing or saying, could you fill in a form? What did you think about aisle 23? I can get immediate real-time physiological data. Wow. And I can do that for hundreds, thousands, millions of people at the same time or over long longitudinal periods. We, we could never do that. So, so from a desirability point of view, there are new things happening that says we understand it. Then from a feasibility point of view, of course, the technologies are racing ahead, as you mentioned, whether it's AI, um, whether it's uh, Internet of Things, whether it's, you know, quantum and blockchain, you know, the new things people are starting to talk about. So that feasibility means we can start to imagine new things. We can say to ourselves, what would happen if very soon we have a complete satellite image of the whole Earth in real time, available 24-7 for more or less nothing at the fidelity of about, you know, a meter square? What would happen if that was available? And what would we be able to do differently than we do today? And then you say, is that feasible? And the answer is, why are they putting up thousands of low Earth orbit satellites now? That's because this is what they want to do. And that becomes, wow, that's a game changer, surely. If that's what we have available to us. That can, I mean, the way I solve certain problems about the world, about what I'm doing, about logistics, about health, about, wow, I could work completely differently there. So again, feasibility. And then we've got viability. The way we look at business models, how we make money, what the word sustainability really means in, in, in the, you know, the, the triple bottom line sense, people, planet, profit, and how we balance that and how we understand that and where revenue comes from, how people perceive value, what they want to pay for, what they don't want to pay for, how we amortize costs. That's been completely revolutionized as well. So, so even if we go back to it's the same old innovation, desirability, feasibility, viability, but we're completely rethinking how we enact that. And wow, that's, that's exciting. That's revolutionizing, surely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people often ask me, what's new in innovation? And I'm, I'm often very boring. I say not a lot, because actually, <laughs> it's often old wine in new bottles. The big exception, I absolutely would agree, is this whole digital thing. Uh, something for me like crowdsourcing, just what is now very easy to do would have taken the King of England and an act of Parliament. You know, to the, the longitude story way, way back in the 17th century was all about crowdsourcing. Who knows a solution to this desperately important problem? It's just really hard yeah. to organize. Now we can do it within an hour. Yeah, that's why they did the Magna Carta, right? That's why we've done you know, seven year surveys to understand what's going on. Now we can do that in an instant. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
Alan, my mind is sort of seriously expanding beyond the scale of the room, but uh, I'm also conscious that time, thanks Mr Einstein, does seem to stay fairly constant and we're running a bit low. Perhaps can I ask you one last question, a little frivolous perhaps, but it's coming up towards Christmas. So I'm the Christmas fairy and I'm going to grant you any single wish you like. I'll do my very best to deliver it. Um, if we wanted to take the good bits of this digital transformation, so we'll leave some of the big question marks around your metaverse and social media power and so on, but leave those questions. But the good bits that we want to take forward, what's the thing you'd most like to help accelerate this change towards uh, a more digitally enabled world and, and a more effective world because of it? I, I'm focused on a couple of things right now. And the big one for me right now is really, it, it sounds a bit dull, but excuse me, it's the educational one. I still think we're at a very early stage in what I would call having the right conversations, asking the better questions. Um, many of the organizations I'm dealing with, students I'm dealing with, when we start on digital transformation, the conversation is very surface level, very shallow, disappointingly so. And what I'm really interested in is saying, there's much more going on under the surface here. You've got to get below this. You've got to begin to think differently, ask better questions, build the knowledge around it, begin to prepare yourself for what I see as this very important change, this revolutionary change that is going on right now. So the most important thing for me would be to get people to start to invest their time and energy into some of those. And of course, I think we were, I, I'm going to argue, we were a little bit on the way towards that. And the last two years has really taken us backwards. Yes, there's been an acceleration of digital adoption, meaning we use things like Zoom and, and Teams, and we've been able to you know, put our materials online. Fine, yes, in a sense. I actually think it's a retrograde step in many other areas, in changing our thinking, in us investing time and energy on the things that matter to us and the conversations with our colleagues that are necessary around what this means and how we make this occur without some of the challenges you, you mentioned the dehumanizing, the, the fear that people have, the uncertainty that people have. And right now, I think we're a, a little bit teetering on the edge of a precipice a bit around particularly things like people's stress, mental health, well-being in relationship to many things, including the feeling that digital is being done to them. They're being swept along. They're not in charge. They don't have agency and control. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And so that's where I'd like to spend some energy helping with that problem. Wonderful. Alan, that's been really stimulating. And uh, it reminds me of uh, my nice Sunday evening experiences, which is uh, in my mailbox early afternoon, I get the digital economy dispatches from Alan Brown. And I do recommend them to everyone because I think that kind of provocation plus insight plus information is really valuable. Alan, thanks so much for sparing some time. Uh, I'll you, make sure people know your website so they can find out more and, and keep up. But for now, thanks indeed. Mm -hmm.